Well, good morning. My name is Brandon Graham. If you're a guest with us, I'm the men's pastor here at uh, Rock Point Church. And if uh, you don't recognize me, I've had a beard for about the last two years. So some of you might be go, oh, that's that guy. I thought he looked different. I thought he looked 20 years younger. So, and that's probably why it is. So we just got done with spring break. Everyone's excited. Yeah, come on. 11 o'clock. 9.15, clap. You've got to clap. Come on, you got to clap. See? There we go. Got to loosen it up a little bit. Little mo- little uh, movie trivia uh, real quick, just to get us started this morning before we jump right into the text. We are continuing our series in Luke, entitled Stories from Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14, if you want to make your way there on your device or, on your, or in your Bible. But before that, uh, I'm going to name some names, and if you just... Since you've already clapped, you're already loose, just whenever I say a name, if you recognize the name of, of the person that I say, I just need you to lift your hand up and put it back down just so I know that if you know it or not, okay? That's it. Easy game. And uh, I'll be going somewhere with this in just a second. <clears throat> so the first name is uh, Rick Heatherly. Rick Heatherly. Does anybody recognize the name Rick Heatherly? Okay. How about Commander Mike Metcalf? Anybody know that name? One, amen. And you should, sir. Um, anybody else over here that I miss of Mike Metcalf? Good, good. Okay, amen. How about Tom Kazansky? Tom Kazansky? Anybody know the name Tom Kazansky? Amen. I see that hand. Amen. Nick Bradshaw. Who knows Nick Bradshaw? Lieutenant JG, Nick Bradshaw. Does that help? Nope. Okay. How about Lieutenant Pete Mitchell? This is where my wife jumped in, and she's like, yeah, I, I know that name. Yes, a lot's for Pete Mitchell. Well, perhaps those of you that are sitting there wondering what in the heck those names have to do with anything, maybe, maybe it'll ring a bell if I tell you that Lieutenant Commander Rick Heatherly was better known, call sign Jester. Commander Mike Metcalf's call sign was Viper, and Lieutenant Tom Kazansky's last um, call sign was Iceman. Lieutenant J.G. Nick Bradshaw was known as Goose. Here we go. Yeah, see, everyone's like, oh, okay, now I know where he's going with this. And so you can almost guess that Pete Mitchell is known as Maverick. That's right, call sign Maverick. Well, I couldn't help but think about that movie, and I'm just, I wanted to have some fun and kind of loosen you up a little bit, because that movie, uh, this is a pretty deep text, um, but I'm reminded of, a, of an opening scene of that movie, or one of the, one of the opening scenes of the movie, and um, they're traveling, they're, they're out on, uh, on an aircraft carrier, and they, are get scrambled, they scramble some jets because of some Russian MiGs were flying in their airspace, and they were going to go scare them off. As they do, uh, a guy named Cougar, who's the number one pilot in the squadron, he is overtaken by a MiG, by a Russian MiG, and he is put on in lock, missile lock, and he can't break free. And it freaks him out. He's, he's, he literally seizes up and doesn't know what to do. He's, I mean, his life's flashing before his eyes. His Rio, his radar intelligence officer behind him, is trying to get him to, to come on. Let's go. Like, you've got to pull your head out. We've got we to do this. Well, Goose and um, Maverick swing in, save the day, chase off the, me- chase off the MiG. But it doesn't do enough for Cougar. He's already frozen up. And he doesn't know. He's, he has no control of his bodily functions at all. Um, he's just locked in, in completely shock. Um, number one pilot in, in uh, is actually was the, the number one candidate to go to Top Gun. And um, they're going, they're, they're flying back, and they still don't know. They, they get a 
call Goose and Maverick are headed back to the squad or to the uh, aircraft carrier because they're bingo on fuel, which means they're out and they they don't have enough to 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 go help Cougar, but Cougar needs help. And so Maverick, which by the way, in a team sport like the military, Maverick is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, you kind of want to be a team player. But Maverick is Maverick, and he does what he wants to do. So they're coming in for approach, and uh, he's been denied by the air boss to go back and help Cougar. But he disregards orders, as Maverick is prone to do. And I can't remember for sure if he actually touches the deck and does a touch and go, or if he just gets real close and pulls back. But Maverick pulls back and goes around and gets, and gets Cougar. And he tells Cougar, just ride my wing, I'll take you in, we'll get you in. Well, all's well that ends well. Everybody survives and everyone's kind of happy. And when I say everyone, I mean those four, those two pilots and two Rios, because they were very ecstatic that they all got back. Who was not was the squadron commander, and his name was Stinger. And you'll remember the, the scene. He's a heavyset bald guy with a really big stack of ribbons and a big fat cigar, and then they're in this tiny stateroom, and everyone's just sweating. I don't know how the temperature got so hot in this room. Maybe it's just because of the stress. But then there's Goose, and there's Maverick. Locked and loaded. Yes, sir. No, sir. And just getting blasted by this guy. And so he's sitting at his desk, calm, stinger. And he says, what you did out there was a very brave thing. What you should have done was land that plane. You don't own that plane. The taxpayers do. Son, your ego's writing checks. Your body can't cash. That's exactly right. One of the greatest lines of all the movie. Your, your ego's writing checks. Your body can't cash. And I remember that. Uh, in, uh, of all the ways, I remember that movie and that line when I'm reading the text this week. Because Jesus has got a large group of people following him. And basically, he turns around. And he doesn't say ego, necessarily. Jesus would have probably said, your mouth. But he would have said, hey, your mouth is writing checks. Your body can't cash. In other words, you guys are saying stuff and, and, and signing up for stuff that you're not going to be able to back up. You know, by the way, good parenting tip, this is free. If you have boys especially and they get terse or they get out of line with your, with your wife or with uh, each other, you can say that line and it works really well. I've, I've heard from a friend that if you say, son, you're, your mouth is writing checks, your body can't cash, particularly if you start taking off your belt, it, it's really effective. <laughs> Again, heard from a friend, heard from a friend. Let's get into the text. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. Luke chapter verse, excuse me, chapter 14 verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said. Now before we go any further, let's just talk about that right there. Great crowds accompanied him. Now remember, Jesus travels light. He just carries a little money. Maybe a little knapsack for his, to, to lay his head. And matter of fact, some texts, if you take it literally, he says, I don't even have a place to lay my head at night. So logistically, this must be a nightmare to have large groups following you. Particularly if they're not really devoted. They're just waiting to see what the next big sideshow that you're going to do is. Because you've already healed some people. You've already uh, you fit, you fed a few thousand people more than one time. Um, this guy is amazing to watch. And it's become more of a circus sideshow than it has been about following Jesus. So as these great crowds are following him, Jesus decides to drop in a seat saver message, which means he's going to grow his congregation from 1,500 to 500 by making seats and room for the new people by giving them a very direct uh, statement about the, the commitment or the lack thereof of their faith. 
But let's just let's take some context to see where we're at. He's coming out of Galilee. Galilee's very up there, top, um, top left there. Uh, remember a few weeks ago when Ron was talking about uh, Jesus had come out of Galilee. Um, he came down, and that, about chapter 9 is when all that started. He starts moving his way south here. Um, he's on the east side of Samaria over near Perea. If you see that in about the middle of the map. Uh, he's down there in that valley when this conversation takes place. So you can see how many people have probably picked up and gone as he's done miracles that go. It's like a snowball, you know. More people just keep getting on and they see cool stuff happening and they just keep piling on. So by the time he gets, and he's halfway to, halfway to Jerusalem at this point, uh, geographically. Uh, we, it's going to be weeks, maybe even months before he actually gets to Jerusalem. But these people are following him and saying they're going to follow him to, all the way to Jerusalem. So this is what Jesus says, verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So right there, Jesus gives us two conditions for following Christ. Two conditions. Condition number one, you will put nothing else before him. You'll recall the Ten Commandments. Number one is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And this is what Jesus is reiterating. He says, you will have nothing else before me. And I can prove this because he bookends it on the back end of this story in verse 33 when he says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, there cannot be anything in your life that is hindering you from following Jesus Christ if you want to be a truly devoted follower of Christ. Now, let me put you at ease. The people he's talking to right now are not committed followers of Christ. Again, they are along for the show. They are not committed and fully believing yet. Which, by the way, in that culture, to be a disciple didn't necessarily mean you had to be a believer. We see Jesus calling Levi, we see him calling Peter, we see them calling Andrew, and they called to be his disciples. And it's not until much later that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. So as a disciple in their context, if you grew up in in the Bible Belt or anywhere near it in church, you, you were taught, you were saved, and then you became a disciple. Well, in the Eastern, in this Middle Eastern context, you were a disciple learning about more of what Jesus is about, what his teachings are, and then when you became fully ingrained and fully indoctrinated, then you say, yes, I'm a believer and I've put my full faith and trust in you. So Jesus is not saying all you believers that are coming at it half-hearted, get out of here. He's talking to the people who haven't yet made a decision and he's saying, look, this is going to be a long road. And what you need to understand is there's anything that's going to hinder you from a relationship with me, from full devotion to me, you need to rid yourself of it. Now, when I read that passage and I said, when I read it aloud and I said he must hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, a lot of you kind of gave me the Scooby-Doo look. Like, I thought Jesus was love and he's talking about hating people. Well, yeah, specifically because the Jews are a very familial culture. Multi-generations living in one house. So this would have really resonated with them. But it would have also resonated with them because they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. And in the Old Testament... It's a very common Semitic idiom of hyperbole. That's a seminary word that I had to pay a lot of money for. Semitic idiom 
of hyperbole, which means it's just a Jewish saying of exaggeration, uh, that means that they were used to saying. And all it means is there's a contrast in how much you love one thing over the other. It's not that you don't love. It's not that you actually hate. By the way, the opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. So he's not saying you don't hate. You actually hate those people. You loathe them. What he's actually saying is he's using the same terminology that was used in the Old Testament back in Genesis when he talked about Jacob and Esau. One he hated, the other he loved. And then Leah and Rachel, Jacob, one of, he, uh, he loved one, he hated the other. So this, was not, uh, this would have not shaken them like it shook you when I just said, hey, you got to hate your mom and dad or you can't follow Jesus. In our West, if we take our Western culture and our Western eyes and put this on top of the text like we oftentimes do, then sometimes not only the, the, the sayings of Jesus difficult, but we make it more difficult. I mean, he's saying it, it's difficult enough in his culture, but then when we try to impose it on our culture, it makes it really weird. So, don't leave here thinking that you have to go hate your mother or your mother-in-law, if that's you, uh, or anyone else in your family. What he's saying is, you can't love them more than you love me. And again, back to the verse 33, you can't love any of your possessions more than you love me. So that's the first condition. Then the second condition, he says, in verse 27, you must carry your cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? He says, you've got to pull your own weight, and you've got to be ready to endure what's going to happen. Now, they don't know it. They may know the general direction they're headed, but they're not really aware of what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. King Jesus, in their mind, is going to show up with six shooters on both sides with pearl handles and his cowboy hat, and he's going to walk in, and he's going to call, he's going to take the government to task, and he's going to overthrow the government, and he's the Messiah. They're convinced of that, and that's what's going to happen when we get there. Jesus is saying, let's pump the brakes on all these different myths and, and rumors going on about what you think is going to happen. Bearing, bearing your cross and following me means you're going to have to endure the things that I endure. Over in John, he says, they're going to hate you because they first hated me. They're going to persecute you because they first persecuted me. They are, and they, meaning everyone who is not in our fellowship, is going to despise you. They're going to treat you unfairly. You're not going to get a fair shake at the market. You're not going to get to do a lot of things that normal people would have to do, but that is the cost. You must bear your cross and follow me. You must carry your cross all the way to Jerusalem. And here's what he has to tell him. And I, I don't know, the text doesn't say that he said this, but I would imagine there's some sidebar conversations about whispers about what's going to go on in Jerusalem. And we know the story, but they didn't know that if you follow this guy all the way to Jerusalem, you are going to get heavily persecuted. And if you followed him all the way, you're going to end up on a stick on a Friday afternoon with no hope. Now, We call it Good Friday because we know what happens three days later. But if you were in real time, you were there just the Thursday before that, Friday got really bad. In our Western culture, Friday is like the best day of the week. Last day of the week, Friday, looking forward to the weekend. Not not then you wouldn't be. If you've carried your cross the entire way and followed him, he wants you to know there's seriousness in the cross in following Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to follow this with two parables to emphasize his point. Number one starts in verse uh, 28. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, it is not able to finish. 
all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So that's the first parable. We start talking about this tower. Now remember Luke, uh, Ron introduced this before, but Luke, Luke specifically, as he writes about the historical Jesus, he often uses these, he, when he describes the way Jesus is talking, he often says, which of you would, or whichever of you would do this? Who would do that? Who would do? And so very much a uh, rhetorical device, uh, a rhetorical question, because absolutely that's just preposterous. Nobody would start building a house and then just, just have enough of the foundation without counting the cost first. I'm reminded, and some of you maybe have lived through this experience, uh, have you ever, has anybody ever had to build their own house or walk through the process with a builder to build their own house? Anybody? Quick hands. Okay, good. For the rest of you, don't ever do it. Just buy a house that's already built. I'm just say, saving you some time right now. So what happens is you're a young family, uh, you're living in an apartment maybe, you just graduated college, got your first job, saved up some money for your deposit, everything's going really well. You're like, hey, let's get a house. So you're like, hey, cool, we should, we should call the bank and see how much money they should give us. And they say, yeah, um, how about you're pre-approved for $250,000? And you're like, yes! And when you're 24, that's a lot of money, and you can get a lot of house. And all my friends from the Pacific Northwest that thought you were going to come to Texas and get a lot of house for $250,000, you were rudely awakened by the property tax thing that we have here. But that's another story. So you're like, $250,000, that's great. That, that'll give us a payment of this, and we can afford it, and that'll be great. And so then you go, and you sit down with the builder, and you, you drive by, and you see all these signs, right? And welcome to this community. This, this community is mid-700s, and you're like, keep driving. And then you say, well, this one starts at mid-400s. Nope, keep driving. This was like low 200s. You're like, Woo! you pull in, you go into the, uh, to the, the example house or the, um, the show house, and the lady's sitting there, and she's like, yeah. And you're like, what's your budget? You're like, $250,000. Give us what you got. I see some beautiful homes out here. And they're like, well, yeah, this is our starter model. And uh, it's $250,000. It's $249,99. So you're going to have a dollar left over. Um, It's uh, 1,500 square feet, two bedrooms, and half of a bath. (laughs) And you're like, like, what do you mean half of a bath? Well, it's actually a shower with like a toilet in the same room. I mean, but it's half a bath. I mean, we, we would consider it a bath. Okay, great. What else do you have? Well, if you really want to go and, and you know, you do the Dave Ramsey and you really kind of tighten your finances, I bet you we could get you into this $400 deal right here. And you're like, $400,000 deal. And you're like, hmm, I don't know about that. And so you settle for the $300,000 deal. And you go, okay, let's do that. That's, that sounds great. Like, okay, great. Here's the only step we have left for you. And uh, husbands, this is the worst part for you. And women, this is the greatest tar- part for you. You make an appointment, you go to the showroom, and you get to pick out your stuff. And you walk in. Can I get an amen? Is anybody with me on this? Okay, just making sure I'm not talking to myself up here. So you get there, you show up, and they start rolling out the, the, uh, the choices. And they're like, all right, well, here's standard. And, but then we have all these upgrades. So uh, you walk in, you go, hey, we're pretty tight on budget, so let's, let's just walk through this. Um, what do we get standard? Standard countertops. And they go, uh, you can get a card table. And you go, okay. Um, can we go up one? Yeah, level one upgrade, $1,500 you can get for mica. Okay, I think everyone in this century has granite. Can we do a granite? Sure. $3,500 level one. Yeah, but she really likes that level two. Okay, 
$4,000. So they write that down. And you do this for every room of the house, right? You go pick tile and backsplash and all these different things and appliances. And, oh, you're just like, and it doesn't seem bad. When you're talking in the $400,000 range, $1,500 here and $3,000 there doesn't mean much at all until you go and you get everything picked out and you're super excited about your house. And then you sit down with the lady and she does this calculator math magic and she hits it. And now you walked in at the $250,000 price point and you're now trying to buy a house at $650,000. You know, I'm la- you're laughing because you've been there and you're like, how did we get here? Because you didn't count the costs. They did. They did it really well. They can tell you to the, to the penny how much it's going to cost you and hopefully there's no uh, problems along the way and things will go the way that they should. But that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, that's absurd. No one would just like, I wouldn't just walk up to my wife and go, hey, let's go, let's go buy a house. Well, which one do you want? If they've got some $700,000 over here, let's go. Um, you're a pastor and I'm a nurse. So I, just, I, don't, I don't know much about math, but I don't think that's going to work. You go, no, it's fine, let's go. I mean, who would do that? That's absurd. And so, thankfully, there's banks and underwriters and things that protect us from ourselves, or I think more people would be doing that, and this would be a lot more, this parable would hit a lot uh, more people between the eyes. But Jesus follows it up. He's like, he's looking around the crowd and he's seeing a diverse crowd and he's thinking, okay, well, they don't get that. Maybe they've never built a tower and that's not really them. But what they would know throughout all of history of the Middle East is war. Assyrians, Babylonians, uh, you name it, they've come through and they've decimated and desolated the entire area since the beginning of time. And so what they know is this group knows war. They, throughout history, they know war. So he says in verse 20, or excuse me, verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war would not sit down first, deliberate whether he's able to, to with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? What king would go to war if he's outnumbered two to one, is what he's asking. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, before this battle even starts, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus said, use these two parables to back up to say, these, the point of, of what I'm trying to tell you is that being a disciple requires sacrifice. This is not a commitment of a convenience. It's a commitment of calling. Jesus called you into salvation. Jesus extended the hand of grace for you and called you into salvation and demands that you give total devotion to him if you are going to follow him. Also, being a disciple, number two, being a disciple requires careful consideration. The Lord does not want half-hearted devotion. You say, how do you know that? Well, because he ends this story, and most scholars believe, even though there's a paragraph break probably in your text, most scholars believe this is exactly part of this. This is the end of his story in verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt is good as long as it's got its taste. In other words, disciples, followers of me are good as long as they're all in. But if you are half-hearted in your devotion to Christ, you and I 
are worthless. And I don't say this out of to bully you or to slap you around. I'm, I'm telling you this out of a heart of personal conviction and challenge in my life that I can find things in areas of my life where I'm not totally devoted to Christ. I haven't completely surrendered that area of my life to Christ. And he says, then you're worthless. It's not, it's, you might as well not even be a disciple at all. It's heavy. Again, I'm telling you, Jesus is not mincing his words because he's wanting them to understand now what you're getting into because there is going to be a lot asked of you and I when we decide to follow Christ. How many times have you seen it? As a men's minister, I want to tell you I see it more than I want to, more than I should. How many times have you seen someone going through death, disaster, divorce, or diagnosis, whether it's a diagnosis of them or a loved one, they come to you, they they obviously come to me, and they sit in my office and they say, man, I need your help. I've made a mess of my life. I don't have a job. I'm addicted to this. I'm a, and I'm, um, you know, my wife's leaving and, and so on and so forth. And I don't know what else to do. So I share the gospel. And in that moment, they say, I'm in. I'm all in. Because they're at a moment. I mean, they're, they, are, they have nothing else left. So they completely concede. And they break down. And they give their life to Christ. And what seems like and feels like a very serious, very uh, authentic way only to find out that when wife leaves or job doesn't come or things don't get fixed, cancer doesn't get cured, that they walk off. And they're no longer followers of Christ. John would say in his, in his letters, First, Second John, that those that would walk away were never a part of the fellowship. They just made half-hearted, spoken words but they didn't back them up with their life. They weren't fully committed. They didn't count the cost. They didn't know what it would cost. And when the cost came, when the bill showed up in the mail, they weren't ready to pay it. Their mouth was writing checks their body couldn't cash. Let me ask you this. What are the areas of your life right now that need shoring up? If you're not a believer and there's something that's holding you back, please meet with me. I will not berate you. I am not a timeshare salesman. I'm a really bad salesman, actually. So I can probably, I like this so much because I like to talk people out of stuff. So uh, you're going to be at ease, but come have a cup of coffee with me, men. And let's just talk about what what is the real cost to get your life on track and live the life abundantly that that Christ has set for you. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, as I mentioned before, it's not a commitment, it's a calling. And when you are called, you are predestined. And we get hung up on that word in Reformed theology, whether predestined means he chose me or I chose him. But that's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul's saying before he created you, he knew that when he, you came to Christ, he has a perfect plan for your life much better than you could ever have. And you can have that today, but you have to take it serious. You have to count the cost, and you have to be willing to pay the price. That means you're going to to have family that's going to turn their back on you. You're going to have friends that used to take you to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch the game who aren't going to invite you over anymore. You're going to have the gossip girls that you hung out with that used to be a part of that now you don't want to be a part of that group anymore because you realize the cancer and the things in it, and now you've become the subject of the gossip. You're going to have coworkers who are going to start talking about you behind your back and how inauthentic. They're waiting to see if you're really going to build the tower or just going to build a foundation like last time and just stop. But now's the time. I'm begging you. I love you, 
as a pastor of this church, as a leader of staff, to root out the small things in your life that seems, that seems so benign right now that could totally wreck your life. I'll share you this story and I'm done. On January 28, 1986, the NASA Shuttle Orbiter Mission STS-51-L and the 10th flight of the Space Shuttle Challenger OV-99 broke apart in midair 73 seconds into its flight, killing all seven crew members, which consisted of five NASA astronauts and two payload specialists, one of which was to be the first civilian in space. She was a teacher. An entire classroom full of teachers, entire school for this teacher, watching on live television as this space shuttle exploded and killed everyone on board. Later, they figured out what happened. They pieced it together. They had some congressional investigations, and it came out that there was an O-ring that couldn't handle, what, that, that became brittle and temperatures under 40 degrees. And at Cape Canaveral in Florida, they didn't really expect that. They knew that it could happen, and it just so happened that on the night of January 27th, the temperatures had dropped below 40, and the O-ring had become brittle. That O-ring was what sealed the tanks of the fuel, and so when they came apart, it combusted in midair and exploded the space shuttle. The entire NASA space program was put on hold, and an entire world watched a disaster and family members die, and people were impacted over a 75-cent O-ring. Let me ask you this. What is the benign 75-cent O-ring in your life right now that you know when it's put under stress, cracks and breaks, but you refuse to acknowledge it, you refuse to accept it? What is it that's hindering you from being a full-on, fully devoted disciple of Christ? And whatever that is, I'm begging you to root that out and address it. You already know what it is. Root that out and address it, because if not, it's going to be a matter of time before we're looking through the wreckage for the black box to figure out what happened to your life. And I don't want that for any person in this room. I love you. I want only the best for your life, but more so, Jesus wants the best for your life. And it's not health and wealth. It's persecution. It's hard times. It's unanswered prayers sometimes, or prayers that we wish would be answered a certain way that would say no. It's divorces, it's death, it's disaster, it's nasty because of sin, but Jesus Christ came to redeem sin and to redeem this world and to restore. And it's available to you as a free gift. All you have to do is accept it. Surrender your life to Christ, not 99%, but 100% to Christ, and you can live a new life today. Let me pray for you. Our precious, gracious, heavenly Father, this text is heavy. This text is weighty. But this text is truth. And whether it comes across as arrogant or comes across as belittling or harsh. God, I pray that no one in this room would hear that, that they would hear truth. And when confronted and faced with truth, Lord, that they would recognize it, address it, 
and deal with it with you one-on-one so that you may restore not only that area of their life, but restore their life in full. Whether it's fathers wanting to be better husbands and, and fathers and leaders of their home or mothers that want to be better leaders in their home or young people who have been fighting and battling through stress, depression, and and peer pressure for drugs and alcohol and all the different things that the world offers, God, but they want to stand strong in their faith. I pray for every person in this room and the families represented here that you would help us to fully understand what areas of our lives we need to shore up to be better disciples for you so we can be fully devoted and not considered worthless to the kingdom. It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen.